good morning, and as I walked up, I don't know who I heard, but I heard somebody say, wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> also, as a dad of one of the trombone players, I'm glad to hear the rest of the brass pieces with that finally, because all I've heard is a trombone part. So <laughs> it was nice to hear the rest of the instruments along with that. <clears throat> good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Duransky. I am not Pastor Walker, so if you're visiting here, if you're new here, uh, I am not the senior pastor at the church. I'm one of the council members at the church here, so you'll have to come back and listen to Pastor Walker. Next week will be the uh, State of the Church Address, and then the week after that he'll be continuing on with the series in Titus, which we've been doing on and off now uh, since the beginning of the year. <clears throat> This is my mother-in-law on the left, Ruth Hicks. She was 90 years old last month. She is a godly woman, and I love her, obviously, the wife of my, the mother of my wife, Jody. This is my mother on the right. I'm sorry I don't have a better digital picture of my mom. Her name is Pearlene Duransky. She is 84 years old, and greater than the fact that she is my biological mother, she is my spiritual mother. She, she knelt with me beside my bed in 1965 and led me to pray that Jesus Christ would be my Savior and my Lord. And it's the greatest thing a mother can do for her child. And I love her very much. Happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> To them and to all of you mothers. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, please. Titus chapter 1. <clears throat> this is Pastor Bill's outline. Uh, last week, Pastor Bill uh, finished up verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. This week, and don't get scared, my family has already prayed for me. We're going to cover the second part of, of, chapter, of chapter 1, and we're going to cover all of chapter 2, but we're going to cover chapter 2 uh, in an overview fashion. So I'm going to go through in somewhat more detail uh, the second part of chapter 1, and then I'm going to pick some selected topics that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about sound doctrine, going to talk about good works, going to talk about identity, and going to talk about submission. So this will be somewhat of a topical message. Now, <clears throat> I sat for a week under the teaching of this guy. His name is Dr. Walt Kaiser. He is a Hebrew scholar and an archaeologist, and he was president of Gordon-Comwell Seminary. And during that week, I was listening to him preach and talking about what they were doing at the seminary. He said, I'm not opposed to topical preaching. We tell our seminary students they should try it once a year, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so you know how he feels about topical preaching. But we're going to do a little bit of topical preaching today uh, anyway. And uh, we'll call it my one time a year. How about that, Dr. Kaiser? So <clears throat> Pastor Walker last week talked about how everything rises and falls on leadership. As most of you know, if you've been here, the book of Titus is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this young man, Titus, who is going to be a pastor on the island of Crete. And there are churches on the island of Crete. 
and they appear to be, from what we know about them, young churches, and there appear to be some problems in those churches. One of the problems in those churches was that they had not established strong, sound, biblical leadership. So Pastor Walker talked us through the first half of Titus chapter 1 last week, and what Apostle Paul was telling to Titus is establish a plurality, a plurality of male primary church leadership. And that's laid out in the character traits of the men who would be church leaders, who would be called elders, are laid out in the first half of Titus chapter 1. Then if you'll notice, down at verse 9, it says... Talking again about these church leaders, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we ended with that, those underlined words last week from Pastor Walker and from the Apostle Paul. And so I want to talk about sound doctrine for a minute. The word doctrine means teaching. Literally, taken in its most literal form, it means teaching. But it also refers to a body of belief, what we believe. And what the Apostle Paul here is saying is that you must cling to, you must hold on to, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, as taught by whom? As taught by the prophets, as taught by the apostles, as written down by holy men of God as they were driven along by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The first point I want to make about sound doctrine is that it comes from God the Holy Spirit. Sound doctrine comes from Scripture that is given by God the Holy Spirit. Pastor Walker referred to 2 Timothy 3.16 last week, which says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos is the Greek word there. God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. And it's profitable, it's beneficial, it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man, the woman, the person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Good works is another topic that we're going to talk about later today. So, in short, sound doctrine is the Bible. Sound doctrine is God's revelation to mankind. It's what God wants us to know about who he is and who we are and what he's doing and what he's going to do. One way to look at it is this, using, got to learn to use the new clicker, <laughs> using, using this narrative. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the earth as an ideal place for mankind. Before God ever created mankind, God completely and perfectly furnished the earth for us to inhabit. God created man and woman, male and female. And don't miss this point as we get on to chapter 2. He created male and female in his image. 
He created male and female to live in this domicile that he had created for them. And he created them for the purpose of intimate, personal love relationship with him. That's the purpose for which we are created. And from that love, in that love relationship, from that love relationship with God, he is honored and he is glorified. So God said, here's a garden for you to live in. It's a safe place. It's a good place. It has everything that you need. And just so that you will be safe, I want you to understand that you can eat of all of the trees in the garden. You can freely eat. But of one tree, you can't eat of that. And the day you eat of that, you will surely die. Literally, the Hebrew says, dying you will die. One rule. That was it. One rule for their safety. One rule for their protection. But the man and the woman talked to Satan. Satan talked to the woman and he said, you know, God's a liar. What he said isn't true. And you can be like God. God told you that because he doesn't want you to be like him. And the woman and the man made a choice and they ate of that tree that God said, you shall not eat of. That's called sin. And sin entered into the world and it tells us in Romans that wherefore by one man sin entered into the world, so death passed among all men, for all have sinned. We refer to that as the fall. And since that time, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, death entered into the world at that time, but God being a merciful and gracious God, he did not stomp on Adam and Eve at that time. But death entered into the world. Disease entered into the world. And since that time, all have sinned. Separated from God by our sin because God is pure, God is holy, God is sinless, God is righteous, and our sin separates us from God. And we can't have that personal, intimate, love relationship with him because of our sin unless that issue of our sin is dealt with. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to be the perfect and the only sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath towards sin. Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, stepped out of heaven, stepped into time and space, took on flesh and blood, lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, and allowed the very creatures he created to nail him to a cross to be the sacrifice, the satisfying sacrifice for you and for me so that we could enter in to that relationship with a pure and holy God. I hope that if you're here today, 
and you have never received and believed in Jesus Christ and that perfect sacrifice that he made on your behalf, I hope today will be the day when you do. Like my mom did in 1965, I would love nothing more than to pray with you today as you receive Jesus as your Savior and you enter into this relationship like no other, this personal, personal and intimate relationship with the Holy God. That's called redemption. We're bought back. We weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then there's restoration. Jesus is coming again. Maybe today. I hope today. Jesus is going to rule and reign. He will rule and reign forever and ever. And if I have one issue with this layout, with this narrative, is that the restoration process starts now. When you are redeemed God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you and that restoration begins. In theological terms, sometimes we call that sanctification. It's growing in godliness. It's growing in Christ-likeness through the power of God the Holy Spirit. God doesn't leave you alone and say, go and be like Jesus. Go and get better right now. He gives you himself. He invades your life. He fills you up. He empowers you to grow in Christ-likeness, to live and to love like Jesus. That's sound doctrine. That's sound doctrine. Second point I want to make about sound doctrine. It is crucial for understanding and measuring spiritual health. Here's what unsound doctrine does. Verse 9, it contradicts the Bible. Let's take a look. Let me read through this real fast. <clears throat> Verse 9, he must, hold for, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Sound doctrine contradicts the Bible. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, this is referring to nothing more than people who are being legalistic and their God is their religion and they want the rules. They want the rules without the relationship. And as we know, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And these people are in love with their religion. It wasn't just a problem back then. It's still a problem today. There are people who are in love with their religion. They are in love with their rules, but they're not in love with Jesus and they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, and we know that this is a guy named Epimenides, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds on this, this testimony is true. I doubt they put that on their Chamber of Commerce brochure, but just a guess on my part. I don't think at the, you know, at the, the main port of entry there, they said, welcome to Crete, where all men are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <clears throat> but it's a warning. It's a warning from Paul to Titus. Here's what you're going to run into. Here's what you're running into. Here's the prevailing attitude in the culture. 
Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what do you really think, Paul? What do you really think? Insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, teaching for shameful gain, unsound in the faith, defiled minds and consciences, unbelieving, professing to know God but denying him by their works, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You think Paul believes that sound doctrine is crucial for understanding and measuring spiritual health? You think he could use any stronger language here? Sound doc, unsound doctrine contradicts the Bible. It ought not to be taught. It's based on myths and fantasies. We do that today. We have the myth of wealth and health. We have the myth of power. We have the myth of I can design my own God because I know how I want the world to be. And therefore, I'm going to take a little bit of what's in this scripture, but I'm not going to take everything that's in this scripture, so I'm going to turn my back on scripture, I'm going to walk away from sound doctrine, and I'm going to design my own God. And then we start saying things like, well, my God would never. God is the God of the Bible. God is the God of scripture. And this is sound doctrine. Are you any of these? Is the word of God crucial in your life? If the word of God isn't crucial in your life, if you are not reading the word of God, if the word of God is not in your life daily, then maybe you should ask yourself and maybe you should go down this list and say, hey, am I on this list? Because if you've turned away from the word of God, if you're not holding firm to the trustworthy word, then some of this is going on. Examine yourself because this is crucial to measuring spiritual health. The reason I will use the word health here, the Greek word is hugiainio. Hugiaino. Hugiaino, I'll get it right. Hugiaino is the Greek word here, and it really does mean health or healthy. If you have a New American Standard Bible, uh, it actually says healthy doctrine. Uh, in Luke, when Jesus said, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick, Hugiaino was the word that's translated well in Luke. So the implication here is that sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. If you like the translation, the English translation of the word sound, think of a building in an area where there's been an earthquake. It may look good on the outside, but if the foundation is cracked, that house is condemned, right? That house can be declared unsound. Sound is stable. Sound is healthy. Unsound doctrine is based on the commands of those who have turned away from the truth. 
living in the internet age, living in the world today, I'm going to move this because I see some people leaning to see the slide. <clears throat> living in the age of television, you can turn on the television, you can click on the internet and find some of these people all the time. There are people who are preaching and teaching based on myths and fantasies, based on not the God of the Bible, but a God that they have designed. They are people who have turned away from the truth. Avoid those people like the plagues. Individuals or the church cannot be spiritually healthy outside of sound doctrine, outside of the word and the will of God. You cannot be a healthy Christian. We cannot be a healthy church. It is crucial for understanding and measuring spiritual health. Pastor Walker ran a little video clip from a movie about Martin Luther last week. And before the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther said, Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Neither right nor safe. If you want to be right, if you want to be righteous... If you want to live righteously, if you want to act righteously, if you want to be safe, then you need to be in the Word. It says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is unsafe to turn your back on the Word. You cannot be righteous. You cannot live a life a righteous life outside of the Word of God and it's unsafe to try to do so. But Martin Luther's not the standard, right? Standard is Jesus. And we're all being transformed, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Seeing that you've put on the old self with his practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. That's the example. God the Holy Spirit is in us to indwell us, to infill us, to empower us so that our character is transformed and conformed to the life of Jesus Christ so that we can live and love like Jesus and help others do the same. Notice this is the work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So this takes us to the third point about sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is demonstrated through faith by godly lives of good works. If you are saved, sound doctrine will manifest itself. It will be demonstrated in your life through faith by godly good works. God the Holy Spirit will transform you so that your life is a life of godly good works. Let me change that and put some emphasis on a different word. If you are saved, God the Holy Spirit will transform you so that you live a life, a godly life, of good works. You see, one of the problems with 
those people who were espousing unsound doctrine was they were empty talkers, right? Their actions were not in line with what they were saying. Jesus had a word for that, right? He called, he called it whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, all painted up on the outside, have all the right words to say, know all of the Jesus speak, go to church on Sunday, do all of the right things, but God the Holy Spirit is not in control of their hearts and their lives. So what, what does that look like? Before we go there, look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice he didn't say, teach sound doctrine. Titus, there's an underlying assumption here that despite the fact that you have these Judaizers, these legalists, these traditionalists, that these people at the in the churches in Crete have been exposed to sound doctrine. And so he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The, also the implication in this statement is there is something that goes along with sound doctrine. The Greek word here is prepo. It means to stand out or be conspicuous or be eminent. What characterizes sound doctrine? That's what he's saying. I want you to teach what is the characteristic, what stands out about sound doctrine? That's what I want you to teach. And so when you go to chapter 2, you kind of have this sandwich, if you will. Chapter 1 ends with, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then he rolls into chapter 2 and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine is good works. Now he is not telling Titus to go teach salvation by works. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But Pastor Walker picked up with verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 last week and said, you are God's workmanship, for we are God's workmanship. The word there is poema, masterpiece. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Don't get the good works out of order here. But good works, a godly life of good works, is what accords with sound doctrine. And so when we get into the rest of chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, which we'll read in a minute, it's a big four example. We'll talk more, than that, more about that in a minute. But I want to skip down right now to the other piece of bread around the sandwich, if you will. And that's verse 11 of chapter 2. Because he's summarizing here. Or you could call this actually a fulcrum passage in the middle of the book of Titus. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? They are zealous for good works. Unsound doctrine, unfit for any good work. Sound doctrine, that whole narrative that I showed you is about him redeeming us from all lawlessness and purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, anxious, eager, wanting to go do it motivated to do it. Why? Because out of loving gratitude for God, He has claimed us. He has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has declared us righteous based on the sacrifice of His precious, sinless, spotless Son. And so out of loving gratitude to God, we are zealous for good works. In fact, Jesus is the definition of good works. Think about that for a minute. His character, his life, he modeled good works. He modeled good works in our nasty environment. And he did it without sin. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Good works, good works, good works, good works. All throughout his life. Out of loving gratitude, out of obedience to his Father. So let's look at verses 2 through 10 of chapter 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself, notice the change in pronoun here because Titus is a young man, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, <clears throat> but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. There are 26 things here, broken up into five categories. I'm just going to give you a summary overview, and Pastor Walker's going to, Spend a week on every one of these. Just kidding, Pastor. <laughs> he does. He does have. He does. He will go, come back, and he will go through this. But I wanted to lay this out for you this way, and I wanted to make a couple of comments about this. There are 26 things here, and there are three conclusive statements. Notice once again that he points to the primacy of the Word of God, that the Word of God may not be reviled because it is precious. It is reflective of God's character. He says that an opponent may, 
be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Why? Because we are God's representatives to the world. We want to be above reproach. We saw that when we talked about the qualifications of an elder in chapter 1. And that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That we might dress it up. That we might make it look good. That we might show it off. That we might demonstrate in the best way possible, in the best light possible, the doctrine of God our Savior. Purpose for good works. I also want to point out a couple of other things real quick. This is, some people argue that, hey, this is cultural. This is just for the Cretans. Other people say, no, this is for the church. This is for us today. This is for everybody. My answer is, yes. It is. It's for both. <laughs> it's for the Cretans. It's for the church. You can find all of these repeated elsewhere in Scripture, and just because they're listed under one column here doesn't mean necessarily that you won't find it somewhere else in Scripture uh, addressed to everybody or even addressed to a different group. You even see here, you see self-controlled under older men. You see self-controlled under young women. You see self-controlled under younger men. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit that applies to any believer, right? It's not saying that self-control is just for those three people groups. Don't read all of that into it. It's certainly not saying that, well, since it's not listed under older women, then older women don't have to have self-control, except for when it comes to wine, but anything else, hey, that's fair game. But we like to take part of Scripture and we like to apply it that way sometimes. That's not what he's saying. Remember, this is a for example. And I actually think that these purpose statements are more significant as far as this passage is concerned. Not that these are insignificant, but as I said before, you will find these repeated elsewhere in Scripture. <clears throat> so don't get hung up and don't try to overanalyze. This is, hey, good works. Sound doctrine produces good works. If you embrace God's Word, if you are infilled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then you will live a life, a godly life, of good works. Good works reflect the character of Christ in the church and the world. That's my summary statement about good works. That's the measuring stick for good works. They reflect the character of Christ in the church and in the world. I want to give you three top-level takeaways here from this passage. My first one. Embrace your station in life, be a teacher, and be teachable. We have those five groups. Four of them are age groups, right? We have old men, younger men. By the way, King James says aged. I don't like being old. I don't like getting old. I'm in my 60s. <clears throat> I don't like a lot of the stuff that comes with being old. But one takeaway from this passage is that I need to embrace my station in life and understand that 
I'm a teacher, and I need to be teachable. You know, I've worked in children's church three times for the last uh, last month, and we, I, w- I was in the room with kindergartners and pre-K kids, and we have some helpers in there who are 10, 11 years old. They're teachers because they model. Look at some of the language that's sprinkled through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Give verbal instruction. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And I would argue that teach here is not just verbal teaching. Urge. Teach what is good and so train. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Don't be an empty talker, Titus. Don't be an empty talker, church. Embrace your station in life. Don't say, well, I'm too young. I don't have anything to offer. You are teaching whether you know it or not. Somebody is watching. People need to see the life of Jesus Christ through you. Don't let anybody tell you you're too young. Paul told Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth. Don't let anybody tell you you're too old. Don't let anybody despise your age. Don't let anybody despise your gray hair. Second takeaway is embrace your identity. Sometimes we, we, some people in the church, universal, like to take out Galatians 3.28 and say, hey, Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ. So all of those distinctions don't matter. Well, if all of those distinctions don't matter, then why do I have this in Titus chapter 2? Of course they matter. These distinctions do not take away, they do not abolish the guidelines and the roles and the functions that God has laid out for men and women in the family and in the church. People try to use this verse as a wedge, as a sledgehammer sometimes, to say, none of that matters because of Galatians 3.28. What Galatians 3.28 says is that if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, you do not see me primarily as an old, fat, white guy. And I don't see you, you know. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're one in Christ. If there's any place... There should be racial harmony. If there's any place there should be ethnic harmony, if there's any place there should be gender harmony, it should be in the church and we should be modeling it for our world and our country needs it more right now than we have ever needed it. And God put us here for that purpose. And your identity does matter. Your identity matters in Jesus Christ. Ladies, there are young ladies out here who need to see you model Jesus Christ. Young ladies, there are other young ladies who need to see you model Jesus Christ. Young men, old men. We need to model Jesus Christ when we're apart and when we're together. We need to model Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your identity does matter. And the last one. Okay, everybody's tightening up their seat cushion now. Practice biblical submission. You know, it's amazing. You got these 26 26 things, 
and we want to get in a dither about these two. I know, I know. I mean, I've gotten emails the last two weeks, oh, you're preaching on biblical womanhood, you're preaching on submission, good luck with that. I'm praying for you, brother. <laughs> uh, all that sort of thing. <clears throat> let, me, let, me, let me address this one first. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that women cannot work outside the home. Deborah was a judge. Proverbs 31, woman, had a business, right? Did business outside the home. Lydia, seller of purple. Uh, Priscilla, tent maker. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it's forbidden for a woman to work outside the home. So that's not what this passage is saying. You have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. <clears throat> Women are uniquely gifted by God to nurture, teach, and train children. You cannot separate the emotional from the biological. It's a gift from God. Motherhood is a gift from God. If marriage, home, and family become a priority for you as a woman that is higher than your home, your family, your children, and your marriage, then your priorities are out of whack. And that's what this is saying. But let me just say something, boys, before you smile too big. If your priorities outside the home, your work, your hobbies, anything outside the home has a pri higher priority than your family and your children, then your priorities are out of whack. Okay? And that's what this passage is saying. <clears throat> Then we go to the next one. Submissive to their own husbands. See how I'm doing. i got five minutes. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, I've, I've sat in sermons, not in this church, but when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, if you think I'm growing up. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I've heard people preach that women are supposed to be submissive to all men. That's not in the Bible. The Bible does not say that all women are supposed to be submissive to all men. They're supposed to be submissive to their own husband. The word here is hupotasso. It means to be in the right order, to be in the right position. It's, it's, in, it's a military term that says get in your place in line so that we can move forward. It does not say that women are supposed to be submissive to all men. I'm gonna, just going to give you some wisdom from my experience too. When people get upset about this, and I have seen all kinds of rancor and discord associated with this. I've seen it in churches. 90% <clears throat> of the time, when you start looking into it, the men are not doing their job. The men are not leading. They are not practicing biblical headship. Their priorities are out of whack. 
And they're saying, well, you're the woman, you take care of the house. That's what the Bible says, submit, woman, work at home. That is not biblical headship. That is not biblical manhood. And I don't have time to get into all of biblical manhood, but I'm going to give you the key verse uh, for it, in my estimation, here in just a minute. So, the other point I want to make about this is you cannot do what God has asked you to do of being submissive to your own husband without being submissive to God first. It all starts with being submissive to him. So let me, let me put this in a broader context. <clears throat> I like to use this example. Jesus is fully God, right? He's not the Father. He's not the Holy Spirit. But he is God. Jesus left the glories of heaven in loving obedience to the Father and he went to the cross and he died for you and me. He said, nevertheless, not your will, but my will be done. He did not give up any of his deity. When this is applied to a relationship between men and women in marriage, a wife submits to their own husband in the role and function but remains equal to, equal to men in nature and dignity. You are created in the image of God. I am created in the image of God. Submission does not change your value or your worth in the eyes of God. When I was studying, I ran across this, and of course, John Piper always has things to say that I like. And uh, I won't go through all of these, but this is from a little sermonette you can find online. It's about 10 minutes that John Piper did about six things submission is not. It's not agreeing to everything. It's not leaving your brain at the altar. I like that one. It doesn't mean that you do not try to influence your husband. It's not putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. The priority is submitting to God first. It doesn't mean getting all of her spiritual strength from her husband. She is still indwelt and infilled by God the Holy Spirit. She is still accountable to God. She does not get all of her spiritual strength from her husband. God does not give husbands the Holy Spirit on behalf of their wife. And it doesn't mean living or acting in fear. Coercion is not submission. If you say, I'm going to make my wife submit, no, you won't. You cannot make someone submit. Submission is voluntary and purposeful. And it's done out of loving gratitude and loving obedience to God Almighty. So, put it in context. I made my little, uh, this is about the extent of my PowerPoint wizardry. I, uh, I used blue and pink up there. That, that reddish color is supposed to be pink. Notice, <clears throat> notice some things here. Paul starts off Titus by saying he's a servant a slave, a bondservant of God. The, the word is doulos. And then in chapter 2 he says bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Paul gets it. 
He understands that first and foremost, I am supposed to be submissive to God in everything because he purposely chose the title of doulos to give to himself. And then later he says, submissive to their master in everything. So first of all, all of us, men, women, everybody, are to be submissive to Christ first. These legalists, these Judaizers, these false teachers, they're called insubordinate. Greek lexicons will tell you that the word there used for insubordinate is the opposite of submissive. You end up on that list I showed you about those teachers that Paul used in the last half of chapter 2 when you refuse to submit. You refuse to submit to God and to his word. Ephesians chapter 5, great passage on body life, great passage on living in love, which includes great passage on husbands and wives. But Ephesians 5.21, before it transitions to talking to husbands and wives, says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I wanted to put that in there because... To me, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8 is the greatest passage, the passage that speaks to me the most on submission. And it says, have this mind among yourselves, men and women, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something that he needed to grasp because he is God, he was God. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. That's submission. And that's what husbands are called to do. That's what we're all called to do, ultimately, is to submit. Have the mind of Christ. Submission should permeate the church, an attitude of submission. When we make submission just about women, we are not preaching sound doctrine. Does the fact that submission should permeate the church abolish the roles and the functions and the guidelines that God has given for men and women in the church and in the family? No, it does not. But scripture is clear. That submission should permeate the church. Submission is honoring the Lord. It's a picture of the gospel. It's love in action. It's grace in action. It's voluntary and it's purposeful. And submission is necessary for a godly life of good works. Submission is necessary if we're going to live and love like Jesus. I want to end with a video here. And I want to just say that the value, the worth, the contribution of women in the church and in the home and in our culture is just as significant as that of men. Let me say that again. The value, the worth, and the contribution of women in the church, in the home, and in the culture is just as significant as that of men. That does not abolish the guidelines, the roles, and the functions 
that God has laid out for women and men in the family and in the church. I believe that every woman has been created in the image of God and is infinitely valued by and significant to Him. I believe God has given women and men distinctive roles within the family and the church. That these roles were intentionally created and given prior to human sin. That according to God's design, according to God's design, these roles are interdependent, but not interchangeable. I believe that gender is God-given, not socially constructed or self-determined. That gender distinctions are rooted in creation and manifested in biological differences transcending social customs and cultural stereotypes. That being created as a woman is an essential aspect of my identity. I believe that marriage was created by God as a covenant. A covenant between one man and one woman. For the purpose of communicating the relationship between God Himself and His people. That biblical marriage is the only rightful relationship for sexual expression. That women are called to honor God in marriage by submitting to their own husbands. Voluntarily and purposefully. I believe unmarried women are fully valued. Fully valued in Christ. That by their chaste and set-apart lives, they may especially devote themselves to service in the kingdom of God. During either their season or lifetime of singleness. I believe that every woman is called to make her home a place of service. And that such service is ultimately to Christ. I believe that investing in the next generation is everyone's task. That women are uniquely gifted to nurture, teach, and train children. That children, as blessings from the Lord, are the most worthy investments of a woman's energy. Whether as biological, adopted, or spiritual children. I believe that every Christian woman is called to fulfill the Great Commission and has the opportunity for significant service in the Kingdom of God. That all service to Christ, according to biblical guidelines, is significant to the Lord. That women are exhorted to instruct and mentor other women. I believe that women are indispensable to the church. That concerning a woman's sphere of service, within biblical guidelines, her opportunities are boundless. Boundless. Her opportunities are boundless. I believe that every woman, every woman, every woman is worth the investment of educational opportunities. That women as created in God's image not only can learn, but should learn, and have access to literacy, skills training, and vocational instruction. That the God-called woman warrants the investment of theological education and preparation for service to Christ according to biblical guidelines. I believe a woman has particular capacity for effecting societal change and preserving moral values. Through her influence in the home and her family and her involvement in community decisions, social action, and public policy. I believe that every woman's life, regardless of culture or condition, has dignity. That whether unborn or aging, impoverished or privileged, she is worth protecting. That the life and dignity of every woman must be defended. I am. I am. I am. Biblical woman. I am biblical woman. Let me conclude with this. Here's what they said about motherhood. Investing in the next generation is every woman's work. Women are uniquely gifted to nurture, teach, and train children. Children as blessings from the Lord are the most worthy investment 
for a woman's, a woman's energies, whether as biological, adopted, or spiritual children. All of you ladies can be a mother. All of you ladies can be a spiritual mother. God wants to use you as he used my mother to point other people to Jesus. Go forth and be a spiritual mother. Thank you. We're done.